We work hard at being healthier. And what we really need is better quality sleep. The new Sleep Number 360 smart bed intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts your comfort and support on both sides. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. It's the biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the new Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing and free home delivery on most beds. And Saturday. To find your local Sleep Number store, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Good evening and welcome to Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross and I'm here with my co-host Tamara Thorne. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit our websites at TamaraThorne.com and AlistairCross.com. You can also give our Haunted Nights Live a live page alike on Facebook, or visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. And if you tweet, our Twitter handle is at thorncross. Uh, first, we'd like to give a very big special thank you to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. Uh, good evening and thanks for listening. Uh, tonight we are talking to author Simon Clark. Simon is the author of such highly regarded novels as Nailed by the Heart, Darker, Blood Crazy, Vampiric, Lucifer's Ark, and The Night of the Triffids, which was a winner of the British Fantasy Society Award. His short stories have appeared in, a, in an abundance of magazines and anthologies worldwide. SFX, Europe's best-selling sci-fi fantasy horror newsstand magazine, pulled its readers on their favorite genre writers of all time. Simon comfortably hit the top 100. Uh, Simon was raised in a family of storytellers, and family legends spoke of a stolen human skull buried beneath the Clark garage. Simon sold his first ghost story to a radio station in his teens, and for the princely sum of 15 pounds, and then he promptly spent many times that in heady celebration. Uh, before becoming a full-time writer, he held a variety of day jobs that have involved strawberry picking, legal work, scripting video promos, and generating multi-million pound projects. Uh, Simon lives with his wife in territory steeped in myth, legend, and epic battles that lies in the country of Yorkshire, England. Um, before we introduce him, I am going to turn the time over to my co-host, Tamara Thorne, who is going to do a reading and excerpt. Are you there, Tamara? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Me? We're all here. Okay, <laughs> Yay. All right. Okay. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from uh, The Fabled Oak. 
Chapter 1. The eight-year-old boy walked across the pave area known as Happy Land's Yard. In the center of the yard stood a tall oak tree that Gwen said was over 300 years old. The tree had a name, the fabled oak. Toys, jars of food, dream catchers, and messages had been tied to its branches. These were gifts to the fabled oak. Gwen wanted everyone to be kind to the tree. In return, the tree would be kind to the people who lived there. To the boy, it seems that the treetop branches must brush against the clouds which were shooting through the sky. The breeze, gusting from the sea, tugged the branches and made the leaves hiss. The boy carried a plate full of cupcakes that he'd baked in his mother's help. Today was his birthday, and he would hand out the bright pink cupcakes to his classmates. Dylan remembered that Gwen had told them about being kind to the tree, so he took one of the moist cupcakes sprinkled with brightly colored popping candy, the lovely stuff that goes crick, crack, snap on your tongue, and he placed a cake in a hollow that had formed between a branch and the tree trunk. This one's for you, tree, the boy said. The breeze blew harder and the leaves hissed loudly. Then a voice rumbled over the hiss. Boy, boy, I can see you. Dylan glanced around Happy Land's yard. Swings blew back and forth in the wind. Ribbons fluttered around the maypole. The place was deserted. Not a single person in sight. Dylan was alone. He frowned, wondering who'd called to him. Boy, up here. Startled, Dylan looked up into the tree. From ten feet above him, a face stared down. Dylan froze. He couldn't breathe. His chest hurt because his head pounded so hard. The angry voice demanded, Why are you looking at me like that? Dylan's shocked gaze locked onto the face, the strangest of all faces. In fact, the strangest face he'd ever seen. The face was that of an angry man, yet it was so frighteningly odd. The hair was made out of spiky, sticky-out leaves. The skin of the face was green moss, and flickering through the green lips was a tongue that seemed to be a long piece of fern. The eyes, the eyes were the worst. Each eye was formed from an apple. There was something so angry and so spiteful about them as they bulged from the mossy face. The stranger said, "Why are you looking at, for, at Why are you looking at me like that, for boy? Do you think my face is something to laugh at?" Suddenly, the face started from the greenery. The apple eyes grew larger. The jaws opened wide, ready to bite like a snake. The boy screamed. He left the cupcakes rolling on the ground behind him as he fled, fled from the courtyard. Dylan could only hope that he reached the classroom door before the awful mouth and its sharp teeth found their intended target. Love it. Very nice. Yes, very nice, creepy. Okay, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight's guest, Simon Clark. Hi, Simon. Hi there, and thanks very much for inviting me across. Hi. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Alistair. I'm glad to be aboard. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> okay, we've been having all kinds of technical difficulties due to updates on the uh, in the studio. So if 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 anything goes wrong, we're sorry for you, Simon, and yes. everybody else who's listening. Um, yes. <laughs> before we get going, um, we uh, I'm interested in this. Uh, uh, you kind of have this. Uh, nature elemental thing going on and uh that's something that Tamara has written about also in in bad things let's talk about that for a minute where where did where did you come across the idea to do that yeah um yeah by all means i mean uh i'm just going back to my perhaps 12 or 13 years of age and i read um arthur macken's the great god pan and that really brought 
quite vividly to life you know the, the idea that, that there could be a spirit of nature and could be um i guess a, a collective consciousness um found in trees and forest plants and uh, i grew up in a rural setting and um as i walked around the fields uh, through my teens uh, i got this sense you know there was some undercurrent there was some kind of energy flowing through the vegetation whether this it was just a, a teenage angst kind of thing um or what i don't know but uh i became more and more interested in the idea that um you know that there could be a, a lurking intelligence in in nature that could reach out and and touch us and and, and things uh, uh books i read later such as um john Wyndham say the triffids Alshin and blackwood's the wendigo all seem to reinforce this notion that uh you know perhaps th flowing through nature itself there's a kind of um spirit that might even be kind of uh intelligent and uh you know possibly could impress itself on on, on human minds you know and we could feel that you know perhaps you know the the, the ghost of nature as it were oh, nice, the great nice. Dutton is fantastic um it's funny i learned about the green man as a child at the museum in california i got hung up on the ta english tapestries the the hunt scenes and i oh, yes, saw yes. the green man's face uh, I love it too. There's something so natural and yet so scary about it. And yeah, nowadays, um, climate problems, it's even better. <laughs> it, it is, yes. I mean, there's, well, I mean, it's such a powerful thing that extends throughout the world this idea that, um, you know, the, you know, the spirits in the rocks and the spirits of the trees and, you know, that, that nature might be able to, you know, in, in all its forms, whether it's plant life or animal life, you know, there could be something that could reach out. To us, and perhaps we are picking something up uh, in a, a subliminal way. Um, and, and in, in British culture, yeah. in, in churches, you get the you know the Green Man carvings in churches. Um, right, and, and that's it, fascinating because that was the the people that did not want to be forced into Christianity, so they put those foliate faces in there of their own gods, and the Christians didn't realize it. I love that. Yes, oh, really? <laughs> so they wanted to, <laughs> to, to cover that. themselves. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, nice. again, in, sorry, I'm going to say, in, in British churches, um, I, th I think it's time delay probably. Sorry if I talk over you a little bit, because sometimes they, I start oh, talking and then you come in and, uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> apologies for that in advance. But I was just going to say that uh, a lot of British churches are built on um, on pagan temples. Again, it's the oh, ancient yeah. people thinking, oh, okay, we'll embrace Christianity, but we'll just play it safe and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll build yeah. a Christian church, our old temple. and. Where I live in an old village called Adwitler Street, um, our local Christian church is called St Lawrence's, um, but uh -huh. St Lawrence was a, a Roman um, pagan deity, and it's believed that uh, our local church is built on an old Roman temple, and there's lots of Roman activity around here. So, yes, it's I suppose again, it's a, a theme for me for what I write about is the is the past yeah. leaking into the present, uh, into the present, and I, I guess Tamara from from looking at your books um you know you, you feel that too you know the, you you uh you draw that for your own work you know that they there's, there's a porous membrane between us and the past and sometimes things leak through i i nice. agree that thoroughly nice. i do think there's something something scientific to it too the metal ores and things we felt some things where in forests where in fact there's a movie i think it's called it's not the manitou it's wendigo which is an American Indian word for it. Um, you get in the forest and suddenly you have no sense of direction. And I tend to think there's 
fault lines, magnetic ores, all kinds of things. I felt it. It's frightening. It really speaks to your caveman brain. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I think uh, some research was done a while ago about earthquake zones. And apparently they do generate electricity. The, um, the rocks are grinding against each other on fault lines. And that can actually be projected yeah. into, into people's minds and they can pick up on that. And, um, it can even produce hallucinations and feelings of great anxiety. And uh, I suppose what you know, people might call creature feeling. You know, if you, you feel something yeah. crawling up your back, you know, you've got the, the shivers and you don't know why. And you keep looking over your shoulder thinking, something's there, something's there. But uh, you know, it could oh, be yeah. something emanating from the ground. I totally yes. buy that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's go back to let's go back to the very beginning for you, Simon. When did you 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 it, you uh, published your first story in your in your teens? What was that story about? Yes, I mean um, I've, I've been writing for a while. I mean I've always been, I guess, a storyteller. You know, ever since I was perhaps four or five, I'd make up tall stories. Yeah. Uh, uh, one favorite one was to tell my school friends that I, I controlled gigantic robots and these lived in my attic at home. And I just, I, <laughs> nice. I, I just tell kids in the schoolyard, you know, for a bit of fun. And, we, and uh, you know, I, I just thought it was a bit of fun. It was nice to have a bit of attention. And then one day I looked out of my house and saw one of my school friends walking by and shooting up, shooting terrified glances up at the, uh, the roof of the house. And I thought, oh, he actually believed what I told him. He actually thinks there's gigantic robots in there in the attic uh, but I, fast forward a little bit and I started writing in my teens and um, sent short stories out to a magazine called Science Fiction Monthly uh, which is long gone now perhaps I'll be one or two um, you know sci-fi fans out there might remember it or have heard of it um, but I got rejections you know I, I got the, the stories were all sent back um, I, dis I discovered the small press and I started yeah. sending out um, the, the basic uh, published uh, poetry and I thought, well, I'll write some poems, but they all turned out to be horror poetry about graveyards and things crawling out of graves. <laughs> and I said, these are published. And I thought, oh, well, there's something in this. And I started sending short stories. So by the time I was about 18, I was having short stories. And there were very short, short stories, about 10 lines long, being published in magazines. <laughs> and also this horror poetry. Nice. So uh, let's talk about the, the – there was a – um supposedly the uh a stolen skull in your garage or <laughs> buried beneath your garage <laughs> yes i sort to clarify this in case i get a call from the police uh, but <laughs> but it's, it's quite one of these bizarre stories i think uh my family does attract bizarre stories and uh apparently a long time ago when my father was in his his mid-teens and this is going back to the 1940s um, he and his, a couple of his friends were walking along the road and there were some roadworks going on and it meant that the part of the graveyard had to be dug up and um, the, obviously the, the skeletons exhumed and these were moved you know, quite reverentially and respectfully into a tent on the site. Uh, nice. my, father's, <laughs> my father's friend was a bit of a tearaway, you know, a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a hoodlum basically. So, you know, I'm going to go back there tonight and I'm going to steal a skull. And, uh, which he did, yeah. and, and he took it home to his father's house, and, and, and said, uh -huh. "Hey, Dad, look what I've got!" And presented this skull. You know, as his father was eating <laughs> his, his dinner, and his father just sort of fainted. And uh, but when he recovered, he went out to the hole <laughs> of the garden, buried the skull. Oh, but then you have to oh. fast forward twenty years, and for some unknown reason, my father bought that very house, and he knew there's a skull buried in the garden, so he had a garage built over. Uh, sorry, 
the garage built over the uh, the plot where the the skull lay, and I think it was because he was a bit worried that the skull might break out one night and, uh, and come and haunt them. So apparently there's a skull there still. So actually, I should wonder if I have to tell the police about this in case they need to dig it up. Because <laughs> if somebody discovers it by accident, no doubt there'll be a, a murder investigation. Right. Wow. So no wonders you got a good start on writing scary stories. Um, yeah. <laughs> I read the first book of yours that I read was many, many years ago. Well, not many, many years ago, but it was uh, This Rage of Echoes. And um, I picked it up in a bookstore because I loved the cover. And I read it and I loved it. And I've since you know bought and and read many many more um I, where did you i want to talk about that book just for a minute just because that's the one that really turned me on to you um where did the idea for this rage of echoes come from what's the story behind that story um it, it's it's almost like one of these glib sayings i think you know that you know that we come back be our own worst enemy you know, that we can do things in life that, that rebound on us or, um and so yeah, I think that was like the tiny, you know, a little bit of a jumping off point. And I thought, well, you know, what would make a really scary monster? Um, you know, would it be something 20 feet tall with fangs and hair and big eyes? And you think, oh, that, that would be scary. But then I thought, well, what if the monster was you? You know, the, you know if the face in the mirror was right. was a really horrible monster. And by degrees, I came up with the idea that, um, that there'd be spontaneous clones occurring of us. And that you know, I guess it's it's almost a bit of a neurotic thing, a bit of a Freudian idea, you know, that was like based on neurosis. That one day you might be right. walking down the street, hear footsteps, turn around, and see a copy of yourself walking towards you. But that copy of yourself is vicious and destructive, and wants to destroy you. And if it can't destroy you, it'll destroy other things and kill people. And then of course you'll be you'll be blamed for that, uh, you know, that killer. And and. Uh, I guess also partially it came from, I was doing some work in maximum security prisons uh, with, again, it's kind of the dropping conversation, isn't it? But with uh, psychopathic killers, you know, the real life Hannibal Lecters, you know, the people who'd eaten people, right. people who'd had um, paranoid, del paranoid delusions that they, um, the neighbors were vampires who were going to kill them. So they had to kill them first, they had to kill the neighbors first. And so that, that idea, you know, basically was brewed up from, you know, the um, visits to, to prisoners in, uh, in maximum security jails and also there's just this notion that you know that perhaps one of the scariest monsters would be would be yourself you know if you saw yourself walking down the street you know perhaps with uh, blood dripping off it off the hands right <laughs> right and um, as always i mean that's what's instead of gone oh I, I was going to move on to another book um the first one of yours i read way before we met uh, it was Blood Crazy. And I loved it. I think that's one of your bestsellers. And it's zombies, way before they became really popular. Can you tell us about the genesis of that idea? Yes, I kind of, um, I suppose it's going to be a bit of a theme emerging here, but usually it's it's so, something often that I just see that's a bit odd that shouldn't be there. You know, perhaps walking down the street and seeing something odd where it's a strange looking house or. Um, something that should be familiar but then suddenly a little bit odd i mean and um the jumping off point for blood crazy was two separate things one a, a very simple almost mundane thing you know, i saw like a day job and i was walking to work one morning and saw some blood on the street i thought boy that's 
groups and didn't really think much about it. Um, but then later in the day, I had to go uh, drive out to another town. And I, I guess it's the same in the States. You have, um, do you call them level crossings where a, a railway line goes across a road and gates come down and uh, stops the traffic? Uh-huh. Right. You, you, yeah, do you have like level crossings where the railroad goes across the street and the, and the, uh, the, the street's close to traffic? And I was in this town, and it was just when the schools were coming out and all the kids were walking along the sidewalks. But a, 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 tra a train was going across the uh, level crossing, the, the gates came down, and all the traffic stopped. And the kids loved this. Loved this. They all started walking around the cars. And I thought, well, what if the traffic stopped forever? You know, what, what would the children do? You know, they'd obviously got a buzz yeah. out of it. I thought, well, they'd, they'd create their own, their own world, but perhaps there'd be a bit of a, you know, there'd be an excitement about it, and they'd perhaps do things differently. And with Blood Crazy, I mean, partly it was this notion that, uh, you know, if people haven't read the book, it's about everybody over the age of 19 years of age becomes murderously insane and turns on the young, and particularly the parents, turn on the children and, and try and kill their own children. And, um, <laughs> but the parents are transformed from this zombie-like creatures. So they're not zombies as such, they're not being killed and brought back to life. It's something that the the, the, the mind has just blown a fuse, but collectively, and all the adults become murderously insane. And right. you know, I thought, well, what happens if this happens overnight? You know, the, the kids are running for their lives. Um, but as well as you know, there's something terrible happening. They also begin to see it as an opportunity to create a new world, uh, the kind of world that they want. But of course, it's 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year olds are doing this. So you know, they want to create a fun world where. Um, you know, about the usual kind of um, constraints of going to school, passing exams, finding work. So there's an element of, <laughs> of almost perhaps some joy and release in it in some ways, even though it's perhaps in a, a, you know, yeah, a dark way. And then, of course, so, pursued by the adults all the time. Nice. How do, you, how do you think we have right now in America, zombies are hot, hot, hot. I don't know if they are over there, but they are here. And I'm curious oh, yes, if you sir. know, are they? Yeah. I, I'm curious, do you know of any differences between American zombies and British zombies? <laughs> Other than their accents, <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're, hang on, I think they're quite transatlantic now. I think they've merged and they're quite similar. But yeah, we have a lot of um, zombie movies and TV and um, obviously novels. Um, we don't Shaun have the Simpsons, though. Yes, Shaun of the Dead, yeah. We don't have the Simpsons, oh. though, because I always love, love their zombie stories. Like, you know, the zombie Ned Flanders, the zombie William Shakespeare. Oh, I love that. I, I think that was fantastic. <laughs> I remember zombie Ned Flanders. That's yeah. <laughs> um. But yes, I, I think what, our what? zombies are more or less the same, yes, they're very uh, similar. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, why do you think zombies are so popular? What is it in the the psyche that appeals? It always surprises me that people love them. Yeah, yeah. Because when I wrote Blood Crazy, um, there weren't really any any zombie stories about that I could think. I mean, certainly there were the you know the more Romero films and the the older zombie films. Um, but there weren't any zombie stories. If anything, when I wrote the um, Blood Crazy in the mid nineties. Um, vampires are still very popular, um, yeah. and you know, 
yeah, for some reason I got yeah, I got this idea until I had to, to write um, a story which featured zombie-like creatures or people that became almost like zombified. And I don't know, I wonder if it's because, I don't know, I don't want to get anything too, too heavy or, or sound too philosophical and perhaps I'm, you know, not being accurate. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I wonder if, because I mean, vampires are, tend to be more of a, an external threat as a rule, but whereas zombies, often the ones that we see in movies, uh, you know, our neighbours and own family that become zombified. And even with The Simpsons, right. it's, you know, it's a zombie Ned Flanders, <laughs> it's sick. Or, or, you know, <laughs> excuse me, or, or, or other, other people down the street. And, uh, you know, I wonder if it's because we're becoming so insecure that we, we, we're seeing, you know, the monsters might be the people you know, who normally we'd love, you know, they would be our family, you know, and, and we're sending fright that our own family might turn about against us. Um, right. I mean, this is something years gone by, but, but usually they, the monsters were, might come from outer space or another country, or they might yeah. come from sort of weird rock at the bottom of the ocean, you know, that's broken open. But a lot of the, the monsters that I can see in the last 10, 15 years tend to originate much, much closer to home, you know, they are the, you know, there might be the people next door who become zombified or, you know, even, our, mm -hmm. say, our own parents or children or uh -huh. nice. pets, you know. You, you, I mean, there must be so many different takes on zombie stories now, um, you know, a, a remarkable number. And, and But most, you know, the, the, it's about people who would seem to be normal and perhaps we'd normally love being transformed into something horrible and, and dangerous. I don't know, what, what are your views, guys? Nice. Now you do um, a lot of end of the world books, and um, we're interested in in we actually uh, we're going to kind of do something like that next year. Um, wh what is it that interests you so much about writing end of the world stories? It's a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's it's one of these old things. It's like you know the, the the old story about asking a centipede how it walks, and uh, you know the centipede thinks about it, and then realises it can't walk anymore because it can't it can't figure out how you know how it actually does walk. Um, it's almost I think like an instinctive thing with with myself. You know, I'm, um, I've always been interested in so you know the the, the you know, disaster movies. I mean, there's been plenty about on. On television, you know, whether it's like the old ones, like War of the Worlds, where basically civilization right. collapses, or there was one that I saw when I was very young called uh, Is it on the beach? Or the, so, yeah, a Neville Shoot novel, I think it's the, called The Beach or On the Beach, and it's a, it's a, a nuclear uh, war story. And uh, basically, there's been a huge nuclear war in the northern hemisphere, um, but Australia's okay for the time being, but. Everybody's wiped out in the northern hemisphere, but trouble is then the radioactive clouds drift southwards and everybody in Australia knows they're going to die. I mean, that that terrified me when I was about six years old and I saw it. And so that oh. probably stuck with me. Yeah, um, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, I like reading history books and, uh, you know, uh, I was fascinated by things like the collapse of the Roman, Roman Empire or the collapse of uh, Constantinople, the idea of huge civilizations crumbling away to nothing till basically, you know, Say Rome is just a one big ruin. You know, it's, it's a marvelous ruin with wonderful buildings, but they're just you know birds living it and wild and, and dogs wandering in and out of the the palaces. And right. It's all it's all collapsed. And you know, I so, so it's a little bit of uh, philosophy, if you like. But I think we're hardwired 
to, to look out for the signs of the collapse of society and civilization. I think we've always got a, a sixth or seventh sense where we, we're always in the back of our minds, we're aware that you know it, it could all end tomorrow and we look for the signs right. because once we do see the signs, that's when we got the, got to get the hell out to the to the to the right, mountains. right. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll the and uh, you know and, and catch our own food. And so yeah, I think there is something almost on a genetic level that that, that that's there inside of us. Right. What do you think would happen if we really did have an apocalyptic situation? How many people would be able to survive, considering everybody is always on the computer and cell phone and all that? I think we'd learn very. I think we'd learn very fast because clearly, when civilizations <laughs> in the past did collapse, you know the yeah the people did survive and, and and rebuild even perhaps in in different forms. You know they might have had to live in um, basically uh, you know huts made out of sticks for a few generations, but eventually they did, did rebuild. Um, but just out of um, just as a matter of a personal experience. Um, a, a few years ago, we had a, uh, the delivery tank as it delivered gasoline to the petrol stations went on on strike. And there, was, there was no no gasoline for a while, and cars stopped uh -huh. running. And suddenly, the motorways and all the big roads just suddenly fell silent. And but wherever yeah. there's a bit of gasoline left in a, a, a gas station, there the queues of cars and people actually then starting to fight for that last bit of gasoline that was in the pumps for their car. So I think right. civilization, if, if if it did get a, a hard enough push, um, would initially collapse very quickly. And then I think we've seen it you know, elsewhere in the world. And I guess it's especially vulnerable in the West, you know, whether it's some disaster, whether it's flooding or um, even like power outages. I mean, if the electricity just stopped where we live for a week, right. you know, what would we do? You know, if, if the yeah. water was stopped being properly to our homes. Oh, no, I can't even out. handle it for an hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I see if that happened for a week, you know, I think we'd, be pushed to the edge you know, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um why don't we talk a little bit about winter chills what can you tell us about that what is that all right it was uh going back about 10 years or so a, a, a director of the bbc featured me on his pro on a program just talking about my books and at the end of it he said oh we must work on a something again one day and uh, I thought he was just being polite, and I said, oh, thanks very much, shook his hand and went. And then a few days later, he phoned up, uh, he called me up and said, oh, have you had any ideas? And I said, oh, ideas for what? And he said, oh, a TV series. I'm going to have a meeting with some uh, like the, the top producers, and I want to take an idea to them. And, uh, you know, you said you might want to work with me. And I, so almost on the spur of the moment, you know, just, just through speaking, I said, oh, um, how about a ghost hunting program? Um, and, it, and you know we'll go out and investigate haunted houses and he said oh that's a great idea right. leave it with me and then it came back a couple of days later and said yeah we've got the go-ahead you know we're, um, we'll have some meetings and then get the ball rolling and so we, we came up with this idea that we'd go and investigate um, hauntings of very various houses uh, and also we'd take bring along um, people who claim to have uh, paranormal powers you know, so they could get a reading of the place and see if they right. could, uh, you know, see anything, as it were, you know, using their, um, you know, the, the, the paranormal powers they have, you know. Uh, and so I, I, the way I approached it, I thought, oh, it's going to be a bit tongue-in-cheek. 
Um, but when we actually went to make the program, it, it was fascinating. You know, I, I was surprised. You know, the, the, the depth of, of, of belief that some people had in the, the paranormal and, and in and ghosts. I mean, there was zany things happen as well. I mean, we, we went to there's a very old city called York in in, in Yorkshire, and the, the old York as opposed to the New York, of course, but uh, in, in the old, it's a very old city. But nearby was an old World War Two um, aerodrome where um, um, bombers were were based, and so that was had a reputation for being haunted. We went there and found that the runway had been upgraded. And it was used by the United States Air Force, but we believed it was just as a just as a standby runway in case a plane got into difficulty. Apparently, they could even land this space shuttle there back in the day. If there was a problem, it couldn't land in America. It could land on this this huge runway. It was a really long one, and so they said, "Oh, it'd be a great shot if you get into this van, drive along the runway, we'll film you talking about ghosts." So we did that. I drove along, happened to glance up at the control tower. And there's a bunch of uh, military people there <laughs> waving their arms and uh, I, I think having uh, <laughs> heart attacks because I was driving along a runway, which I found out later was actually an operational one. And uh, whether they thought I was terrorists or just simply this crazed guy in a van driving along with a camera crew <laughs> in the back. I don't know. Oh, but no. uh, um, <laughs> Luckily, I, I live to tell the tale. You know, I pulled over the van and then, lo and behold, a couple of F-16s landed. So I had a few words with the director and his... Uh, yeah, it, it is mistaken belief that the the runway be mothballed. But uh, no, that, that's an aside. But then we, you know, went to some old castles, went to some old mansions. And like I say, the it was interesting to to hear people's stories. Uh, you know, that were filmed for the for the program. And uh, right again, I think Tamara's been involved with this, haven't you, in, in ghost hunts on TV? Yeah. Do, have yeah, you yourself ever had any experiences that uh, you would consider paranormal? I have to say not, but uh, the, the more I, I I took part in these programs, um, the more I felt as though there was a theme emerging, and uh, you know, I'd like to do more of this and do more investigations into the paranormal, because I think there's, there's something there, but whether it's actually something that exists outside people's heads, I don't know. I, I've got the feeling that Perhaps what was manifesting itself was something inside people. You know, that perhaps they were again. It's all a bit psychological, but they they might have been projecting something inside their, their own minds outwards. Not nothing that we yeah. could see, but they believed in it. And the, the abiding um, uh, impression I got that a, a lot of the people who believe they saw ghosts said it was a good experience. You know, they felt warm and reassured. You know, often yeah. they didn't see anything as such, but sometimes in haunted places that they, they felt a, a very strong presence of something that was actually very kind and benevolent and um, caring. You know, they, they weren't seeing nasty ghosts that scared them, but, you know, they were, you know, their paranormal experiences was something as if it was, there's something trying to reach out and contact them, but in a, you know, friendly, almost loving kind of way. I think that's pretty common. I, I've, I had a, my, I saw my mother when she died, one of the deathbed things, and it was so nice. I thought I was hallucinating, though, because it was late at night. But it was very nice. I think a lot of the really scary ones probably have more to do with the atmosphere, that whatever's the imprint on the place. There are not very many frightening ones. Could be, yes, I mean, yeah, places. yeah if, if anything, you know, I got the impression that it was 
the other people reassured. I mean, it was, again, it was strange again, Tamara, because you've done the, the ghost hunting programs on TV. That what 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 I found was that the best ghost stories that people told and you know, went to visit a haunted mansion weren't so much the people who wanted to tell them. It was when we were packing away at the end of the day and putting the cameras away, somebody you know, like the, the gardener or the, the handyman would come up or the caretaker and say, oh, something really strange happened to me. And that would be the, the most disturbing, yeah. interesting story. And perhaps, oh yeah, you know, completely believable in a way, because they, they, they weren't wanting to be on television or, you know, they weren't seeing it as being a, a quick way to be, be famous. You know, they were probably reluctant to tell yeah. the story and then, Came, you know, it was a confessional thing, you know, that was something they thought at first, I'm not going to tell this story, but then at the end, they thought, oh, they felt reassured enough to think that they come on and say, oh, yeah, can I just tell you this story, you know, what happened to me? And uh, yeah. that would be the one that would really, you know, put the hairs on, on your head on, on end. You know, that would be the, the scary one. Exactly. The, the TV show can't make things happen on, on demand, so they just sort of make things happen. And oh, they do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we visited one very old mansion that dated back about 600 years where um, a guy called King Canute lived. He was a Danish, against this, this interesting history of coming back, but he, he was um, a Danish king who was living in England at the time because, of course, the Vikings conquered, um, mm-hmm. conquered Britain, um, or most of Britain a thousand years or so ago. Um, but we stopped in this old, or we visited this old mansion and strange things were happening that the as we were filming the, the the bulbs in the the light bulbs and the lamps kept blowing and because the director would say cut and i say no you don't, you don't want to say cut you're gonna keep rolling this is the interesting stuff this is where we're <laughs> things happening this is where we got the this is where we've got the ghost in the machine if you like you know they we've, uh. we've got the lights shorting out for no reason um because being the professional director it's something as soon as something goes wrong he says oh we'll cut and start again but uh, that was probably the most interesting thing that was happening on that day. Nice. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, um, we are talking to best-selling author Simon Clark. Uh, thank you for tuning in, and be sure to give Haunted Nights Live a like on Facebook, where we have upcoming guests such as F. Paul Wilson, Jonathan Mayberry, and Christopher Moore. Also coming up, we have Jeff Lindsay, author of the Dexter series, Charlene Harris, author of the Southern Vampire Mysteries and basis of the HBO series True Blood, and supernatural historian Troy Taylor. Uh, we're pleased to announce that our horror novel, The Cliff House Haunting, is available now at Amazon.com. And my solo novel, a vampire novel titled The Crimson Corset, is currently in production and is expected to be released in just a few weeks. Uh, for more information about our upcoming projects, you can visit our websites at tamrathorn.com and alistaircross.com. And on the note of vampires, we have to talk about your novel, Vampiric. I love the oh, spelling right. of it. <laughs> and I have not read this one yet. But yes, yes, I'm very excited. <laughs> so let's talk about that one. Is this uh, the first vampire novel you've done? It, it is, yes. It was, um, again, perhaps call me contrary, but uh, when I uh, thought of writing that one, it made mid to, to late 90s it was just when vampires were starting to the interest in them was starting to tail off and when i told yeah. my publisher said oh, i'd like to write a vampire novel and it's, it, he turned around and said oh you're crazy you know nobody's interested in vampires anymore um, but i persisted and, and wrote this this vampire novel and i thought oh, I'll, I'll 
I'll turn it on its head a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll change the, um, but obviously the spelling of vampiric is, is this weird spelling. But, uh, you know, I wanted to, to have vampires doing different things. And so I, I drew a lot on um, Viking mythology for this story. And it came out and I was really pleased to say that it, it was one of my best sellers. It's been translated into Greek, Russian, and picked up the wow. um, nice. uh, Legion in, in the United States, uh, Gondoria, uh, so it as, as, a, as a, a potential hit, and, and it was. So I'm, I'm really pleased um, that it did come out, and um, it did book the trend. And even though people are saying, "Oh, vampires," you know, the passe, nobody's interested anymore. I mean, vampiric turned out to be a really successful novel. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's true at all. We've 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 talked to uh, quite a few uh, vampire writers on the show, and they all they all kind of say the same thing, you know, that they were told, you know, this isn't hot, this isn't, you know, don't do it, ah. and yet they sell. So, whatever. Well, 